episode 109, If I Had a Hammer. I'm Morgan Shortle, and you're listening to the June 16th, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Just like that, I rock them all from white to black. Oh, 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 bless it. On almost any list of famous Kansans, Carrie Nation is almost certain to be in the top 10. Her trademark smashing of illegal saloons during the state's prohibition days made Nation one of Kansas' best-known radical reformers. Join museum curator Blair Tarr and me as we examine a hammer given to Carrie Nation in support of her temperance activities. And then, June is National Dairy Month, so we asked you to connect William Allen White to the advertising icon, Elsie the Cow. Was the sage of Emporia lactose intolerant? Maybe we'll find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, if I had a hammer. Good morning, Blair. Good morning. And today we're going to talk about a hammer that was given to the noted saloon smasher Carrie Nation. And I definitely urge our listeners to go to our website and see this thing because it's not your average hammer. Yeah. It has teeth. It's scary. So could you tell us a little bit about the hammer? Yes, it, this thing is not a light thing either. It's it's iron. <laughs> uh, there's one bar which I think is at least 18 inches long, which is part of the handle, and it also holds several smaller bars, which have sharp points on either end. And it's a Crandall hammer, which was used by stonemasons to dress the outer, the outer surface of stone for buildings. And so it's a very interesting looking piece. Yes, it is. I would stay far, far away from it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, did Carrie Nation actually use this particular hammer to smash the saloons? I don't think she did. I would be surprised if she did. She, yeah, because I always heard it was an axe. So, Well, a hatchet is what she always okay. said, although she was known to use clubs and rocks and anything that she'd get her hands on. But the hatchet is sort of what is endured, and she even made up little hatchet pins to sell right. to raise money. So what did she use this one for? I think she got rid of it almost as soon as she got it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this was delivered to her. She had come to Topeka in early 1901 uh, to con- continue a crusade, which had already started down in, in the mm-hmm. s- south central part of the state and into Wichita. And somebody who was an admirer of hers from Indiana, I believe it is, sent this to her. She's getting presents. She's getting presents. And if they had mailmen in those days, I can just imagine that (laughs) poor guy had a hernia this day. (laughs) Trying to lift this thing in his bag. It was because it isn't light. It would not have been convenient to go smashing. Well, and she was a little person, right? Uh, Yeah, she was. Uh, She was about 5'4", probably. Although some... People say she was six foot. That's not true. We've, okay. <laughs> we've got her dresses. She was not six foot. <laughs> she may have looked, felt like, they may have felt like they were being attacked by a six foot Amazon, but that they weren't really. <laughs> uh, but uh, from the record, Carrie gave the Crandall Hammer to the Society in 1901, and it sounds like it must have been very close to when she received it. Oh, okay. So I guess the bigger question is, why was Carrie Nation smashing up saloons? Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
this is a long answer. <laughs> the short answer is is that God told her to. She really did believe that God told her to start a crusade against saloons. That's too easy an answer because there are other things that are going on here. Okay. She is a member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which is still around today, although it really was at its biggest strength in Carrie Nation's time and was promoting the idea of a constitutional amendment for prohibition. The other thing is, in Carrie's personal past, her first husband was a man named Charles Gloyd. He was a Civil War soldier, captain, I believe, of his regiment. But he's one of those people who doesn't actually get to see much battle. Uh, he's usually in charge of a regiment that's guarding railroad lines or doing things which really lead to the old line about war being an organized war. He just has a lot of time on his hands, mm -hmm. and he is discharged from the Army because of illness. That illness possibly could be alcoholism ah. from drinking too much and in, in those boring times when he's not really doing a lot of the right. things. This is a problem. The drinking continues when they get married. Uh, he eventually dies from alcohol poisoning for all practical purposes. And all this, too, is that they have a daughter who is not well most of her life. She's always got some sort of illness. And Carrie, who seems to be fairly astute about these things, kind of realizes that part of the reason she's ill is because Charles was an alcoholic, and she even blames herself to a degree that she was kind of a distracted mother. She really has kind of a better idea of neonatal care before there really was such a thing as neonatal care. There's also the problem, too, that uh, when you talk about the smashing of the saloons, it's something that really happens only in Kansas, at least the full-scale smashing of saloons, mm -hmm. because it's a bit of a legal problem here. We have prohibition. These places aren't supposed to exist. She's usually charged with destroying personal property, but she doesn't usually get a big fine or big jail sentence because... How do you punish somebody for some, destroying something that legally isn't supposed to exist? Right. <laughs> huh. So where did she actually, do you know which bars she actually smashed? Or joints, I guess they were joints, called. Joints, yeah. Well, uh, there's, in Wichita, the big one was the Cary Hotel, or it was also the Eaton Hotel. They had a very big bar that she smashed and did spend several days in the Wichita jail for that one. Uh. Uh, she destroyed the Senate Saloon here in Topeka, which was one of those places where the legislature gathered. Is that the one that's in our collections? Are there yeah, the we have some of the, yeah, we have some of the smashed mirror from it that the bartender quickly decided after she smashed the place that anybody could have a drink free free if they paid five <laughs> cents or so for a piece of the smashed mirror. <laughs> nice. Business opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> which happened a lot. <laughs> uh, she destroyed what a bar in Enterprise, which is a small town over near Abilene, and there's a few other sites in Kansas where she hits. When she's out of state, she's got a different problem. She can do a little smashing. She might smash a few bottles, mm -hmm. might smash a beer, but or a mirror, rather. Might smash a beer, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the problem out there is those joints are legal. And so if you're destroying property, you can be convicted and get a pretty good size penalty for right. doing that. So she's a little more careful out of state. Where else does she go? She went everywhere. 
Okay. Anywhere, and sometimes she was asked to go places. Sometimes there'd be something in the news about, excuse me, a demonstration or so, and she would go to take part in that. Okay. There's even some stories that go on that sometimes these smashings out of state were sort of arranged. That oh. somebody might present a bottle or two and she'd smash it. Another business and, opportunity. Yeah, everybody gets what they want out of it. Carrie gets a chance to unload her platform on people and just do a speech. Bartenders get a little extra business. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so <laughs> sort of an odd way of thinking about it. And I'm not sure if it's true. But yeah. <laughs> it seems like a logic it seems like a possibility. So you talked a little bit earlier about how the museum acquired. Are there any other is there any other information that's interesting about how we acquired this piece? Uh, well, or other piece, pieces. This piece, the, the Crandall Hammer, is pretty straightforward. It was sent to her by an admirer. Uh, we have a lot of other things, including dresses, things that she sold, like the little hatchet pins mm-hmm. and water carafes. Uh, that have her name on it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we even have kind of a set of what appear to be her false teeth, which we know she did have for false teeth. Oh, wow. Uh, she almost swallowed them when she got thrown out of a saloon in Colorado <laughs> uh, one time. These things were in a trunk from a home in Kansas City, Kansas, where there were re- relatives and wound up out in California in the hands of a great niece. Uh, Diane Kelly, and she and her husband gave most of those pieces, well, gave all the pieces that were in the trunk to us. So about how <laughs> many Carrie Nation artifacts do you think we have? Um, it could be about 50, 60 three-dimensional artifacts. Yeah. There's also a diary over in the archives. The trunk also had several photographs of her in various places. I'm trying to think what else we have, but it's a pretty good-sized collection. It would be a good place for any researcher to yeah. start, and they have started here, actually. Oh, good. Okay, I have one last question. Let's say you're in a bar. I know this may be a stretch, but go with me here. Um, <laughs> and Carrie Nation came in and started smashing. What's your reaction? Uh, have I just been served a drink? Um, let's say yes. Yes, okay. In that case, the first reaction probably would be that it's time to chug. <laughs> uh, <laughs> waste not, want not. Uh, then it's probably be ducking that. <laughs> and then I, I'd probably do something maybe just to see what kind of reaction they'd get. Uh, one of those photos I mentioned, uh-huh. she, she did get involved in other causes. I should have mentioned that, too, here, because she was against smoking. She understood secondhand smoke before we called it. Oh, wow. But, uh, and many other things. But one of the things about these photos, we've got this picture of a nephew who is sort of offering her an ice cream cone. <laughs> and I like it because it doesn't show up very often, but occasionally you find she does have a bit of a sense of humor. Well, good. <laughs> and I'd be tempted probably after she's done Smash, she says, hey, Carrie, you want to go get some ice cream? <laughs> Excellent. Let's see what happens. <laughs> She'd probably either hit me with the club or <laughs> she might be tempted to find out, okay, well, let's go get some ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thank you, Blair. And we, there's probably enough information on Carrie Nation. We could have another couple podcasts. Oh, yeah. We've got a lot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. You're quite welcome. Are you happy, Elfie? Are you happy now? How you sleeping, Elfie? How you sleeping, cow? And now it's 
time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. And joining me today is Museum Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Museum Director Bob Kickeisen. How you doing? And as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, June is National Dairy Month. It is indeed. Yeah. Are you guys doing anything to mark this occasion? No. Nikayla, okay. Uh, eating more no. dairy. I don't know. Cheese. More cheese. More, more cheese. cottage cheese. More ice cream. Thinking of sculpting the Flint Hills in cottage cheese. But, Ooh, uh, or butter like they do at the state yeah. fair. <laughs> sure. Well, I'm moving to Iowa City to celebrate oh, this month. that's right. Yes. Wow. So, that's good dairy state. Yes. You just got to be closer to the dairy. Yeah. Right? yeah. To Wisconsin, but they're really big in cows, well, that's right? True, but yeah. Iowa, you know. Yeah, so we're close to the... Yeah, well, you're closer than you are in Kansas. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. just... Yeah, we should have mentioned that. This is this is Morgan's last podcast because she's going to Iowa City. Yeah. Sad day. <sighs> I was going to say exciting times. <laughs> well, for you. Yeah. <laughs> Sad for us. Well, here at our podcast, the way to commemorate anything is by playing Six Degrees of William Allen White. So today's challenge was to connect Mr. White to the longtime dairy advertising icon, Elsie the Cow. Yep. So, Bob, what can you tell us about our bovine friend? Well, uh, Elsie the Cow was created in the 1930s as the mascot for the Borden Dairy Company. And she was an illustration in magazine ads throughout the 1930s until the 1939 World's Fair in New York. And Borden wanted to have a splashy, memorable exhibit at the World's Fair like anybody would want. So they come up with the idea that they call the rotolactor. <laughs> I don't know why that, okay. what that means, but... Uh, it was a giant glass-enclosed turntable on which cows were milked by automated machines. Ooh, splashy uh, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and people evidently went nuts for this. You know, watching cows get milked by an automated machine as the turntable went around. So uh, it was like I, a cow milking carousel. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Uh, I figured this, is, you know, this is before people had cables. So uh, yeah. <laughs> But the problem was, as anybody from a dairy state or a farm state will know, you only milk the cows twice a day. And the rest of the time, they had no crowds. <clears throat> no one at all, for that matter. So what to do? Well, in examining questions that had been submitted to the company at the World's Fair <clears throat> exhibit, the Borden's advertising people noted that 60% of the questions were some form of, which cow is Elsie? Because people had seen Elsie in the <laughs> magazine ads, and they wanted to know which one was Elsie. So Borden did a quick search for a real-life Elsie and came across a nice, gentle cow, big brown eyes, <laughs> in a Brookfield, Massachusetts farm, and her name was Yuldu Lobelia. I guess like Lobelia the flower. And why people give these weird names to horses and dairy cattle. Yeah. And dogs. <laughs> Yuldu Lobelia. Anyway, well, they quickly renamed her Elsie, and the Susie star was placed on Borden's rotolactor turntable in the hours between milkings. And for some strange and unapparent reason, people fell in love with her, and Borden had struck marketing gold. And by the time the World's Fair closed, Elsie was one of the fair's biggest attractions. Wow, who people, knew? People just huh. came to see Elsie. And she would spin and twirl, too? <laughs> she would spin and twirl as yeah, well? Yeah, she's on the... On the you know, wow. actor just spinning around. <laughs> and it didn't but, make her sick or no, anything. I guess, well, I think I it probably went pretty slow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know cows do that. Yeah. So. <laughs> Not wanting to miss a beat, Borden took Elsie on a series of cross-country tours where people flocked to see her. She traveled in a custom-made 18-wheeler that was dubbed the Cowdillac. <laughs> yeah, and was the guest of honor at numerous ribbon cuttings, you know, grocery store openings, whatever. She even had a credit, and you can look this up on IMDb, 
1940 version of Louisa May Alcott's Little Men that was starring Kay Francis, she actually has a credit. Um, many sources state that in the 1940s and 50s, Elsie was one of the most well-recognized personalities in the country, above politicians, movie stars, other entertainers, everybody knew Elsie. So the cartoon version of Elsie was soon married, quote, to a bull named Elmer, who you might recognize as the mascot for Elmer's Glue. Oh, yeah. awesome. <laughs> but wait, for there's Elmer. more. The first Elsie the Cow led a pampered but unfortunately rather uh, short existence. Only two years after her grand debut at the 1939 World's Fair and after all those cross-country appearances, she was in her Cadillac heading to the Broadway Theater District in New York City and her trailer was struck from behind by another truck while she was stopped at a traffic light on Route 25 in Rahway, New Jersey. And she was unfortunately too badly injured to save, so she was put to sleep. But like many animal celebrities, uh, Yuldu Lobelia was replaced by another Elsie the Cow, you know, just like Lassie and <coughs> Rin Chin Tin and all that. And the advertising juggernaut didn't miss a beat. Uh, during World War II, Elsie became the main spokes cow for selling war bonds, and she continued promoting Borden's milk products. She continued to be pretty recognizable through the 1960s, although her popularity started to wane, and she, uh, <clears throat> but she's never been dropped as the mascot. And if you go to, go to uh, Borden's website, but wait till after the podcast, <laughs> um, you'll see her smiling face still adorning their logo. And... Last interesting note, I know I'm, I'm way too long about a cow, <laughs> but if you're in the Plainsboro, New Jersey area, you can visit the grave marker of the first Elsie, Yuldu Lobelia. After the tragic accident that took her life, she was buried on a New Jersey dairy farm, and the farm eventually was sold and divided up into subdivisions and housing units, so they moved the marker in 1999, so you're not actually visiting her grave site, more like a memorial, but there's a marker there to Elsie the cow, and somewhere in Plainsboro, somebody's house is sitting on top of the grave of an cow advertising icon. <laughs> I feel like living over the Jolly Green Giant or something. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, uh, that's Elsie the Cow. Well, thank you, Bob, for that entertaining bio. <laughs> and, Nikayla, you have a solution? I do, and thank God for little men, because that's oh, where this right. is Yay. going. Well, in 1940, Elsie the Cow did star in Little Men, which was an RKO film version of the book. And, of course, the book was written by Louisa May Alcott. Um, in addition to being an author, Alcott was an abolitionist and a feminist, and later in her life became associated with the women's suffrage movement, um, and at that time she was living in Boston. Well, while in Boston and as part of the suffrage movement, Alcott crossed paths with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was also a well-known abolitionist and suffragist. And it's said that Alcott it, um, influenced some of Stanton's opinions and leanings um, in terms of women's rights. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, in turn, was a friend of Mary Hatton White, who was William Allen White's mother, and she visited the family when William Allen White was a young boy. So there you go. Cool. Okay, Bob, can you issue the challenge for the next episode? Sure. Uh, well, our next episode will be our podcast closest to the 4th of July. So we want you to connect William Allen White with George M. Cohan, composer of Yankee Doodle Boy and You're a Grand Old Flag. That'd be nice and patriotic for the 4th. Great. Okay, so if you think you can connect William Allen White with a composer once known as the man who owned Broadway, just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcasts with an S. That concludes episode 109, If I Had a Hammer. 
To see photos of Carrie Nation's hammer, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on podcasts. If you're new to our podcast and would like to hear more, you can listen to every episode clear back to our first podcast in April of 2006 by going to our website, kshs.org. Our website is also the place to find out everything that's happening at the Kansas Historical Society. You can research our collections, check out our calendar of events, find directions to our library, museum, and historic sites, and even become a member. Come back in two weeks when museum curator Laurel Fritsch gets us geared up for the 4th of July by examining an Army recruitment poster. Exactly who is Uncle Sam and why does he want you? Join us in two weeks to find out. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Oh, oh, oh.